welcome back to Haynes and Boone's Media Minute podcast, which is focused on legal developments and trends impacting the media and entertainment industry, intellectual property, open government, and First Amendment law. I'm Nathan Koppel, Haynes and Boone's Director of Media Relations. Today, for our fourth episode, we're going to explore some interesting copyright issues. The number of people creating content online continues to grow worldwide, whether through traditional websites and news sites, social media sites like Facebook or Instagram, blogs, YouTube videos, and many other platforms. This in turn, though, has led to a rising tide of copyright disputes. The issue is that anytime you use someone else's image, video, music, or text, there's a risk that you are infringing someone's intellectual property. And this risk extends just beyond beyond just amateur bloggers or social media users, even large-scale media organizations and corporations occasionally run afoul of federal copyright laws. Today, Haynes and Boom partner Jason Bloom is joining the podcast to discuss the scope of copyright protection that exists for online materials, the types of disputes that have arisen in this area, and how to avoid liability and, and what to do if you're on the receiving end of a complaint. Jason chairs the firm's copyright practice group and has litigated a wide variety of copyright disputes throughout the country. Before we get going, our disclaimer. This podcast is for informational purposes only, is not intended to be legal advice, and does not establish an attorney-client relationship. The topics we discuss are subject to change. Legal advice of any nature should be sought from your legal counsel. Jason, thank you for joining today. Can you start by offering a quick primer on the legal protections that exist for online photos, videos, songs, and text? Yes, thank you for having me, Nathan. Uh, it's it's first important to note that copyright protection uh, is very broad in the sense that it covers a very wide array of, of subject matter from photographs and written text all the way to uh, architectural works. Uh, and the requirements for copyright protection are relatively minimal, uh, being that there has to be authorship, which means some human being creates it. Uh, so there has to be a, a modicum of creativity. There also has to be you know, a, at least a small amount of originality, but, but the test is not very stringent. Uh, and then it has to be fixed into a tangible medium of expression, which means it's something that uh, Basically, you can see or read. It's not just an idea. It's something that's actually uh, you know, put into a medium, whether it's electronic or, or physical. Uh, so, you know, the scope of copyright protection includes written works, which can be, you know, things like traditional novels or, or news articles. But, you know, even even things like like blog posts or uh, in some cases, social media posts may may qualify. And then pictorial works, which would include photographs, although, as I'll discuss in a minute, um, you know, there are very varying levels of copyright protection for uh, varying matters. And then audiovisual works, which include, uh, you know, motion pictures or even the types of videos that you would see on YouTube. Sound recordings, which can be anything from, uh, you know, well-known musical works to, uh, you know, possibly nature sounds if they're actually created and not, not simply recorded. Uh, and then, as I mentioned, things even like architectural works that you see in public. Um, now, Jason, now do, you are, sort of, do you sort of recommend that people's default setting should should sort of be to presume that the, the kind of the scope of content you're talking about is copyright protected and then and then go from there? 
Yeah, especially when you're dealing in the online space where you know, pretty much everything you're going to see and hear online is, is transfixed in a, t- a tangible medium. It's generally going to have some originality and will have be, been created by somebody. So if it's not something that you've created and you find it online, uh, your default assumption should be that it is copyrightable and that you probably don't have the rights to use it. You talked about different difference. Uh, levels of, of, of copyright protection. Can you, can you expound on that? I'm, I'm familiar with the concept of public domain domain. I wonder if what the safe harbors are for, 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 for people. Well, sure. Regarding the different levels of copyrightability, I mean, you, an example would be, you know, a cookbook can be copyrightable to the extent it's creative and not simply instructional. Uh, but the, the level of protection is going to be a little bit less than a, a creative novel, whereas uh, similarly, a, a history book that is setting forth facts, although maybe in a creative manner, will be subject to copyright protection. But again, not necessarily to the same degree or breadth as, as a novel that somebody creates in their head. And, and photos, which is where we're seeing a lot of online claims for infringement, are interesting because you know, it takes probably less work uh, to create some photos um, than any other type of copyrightable work because, you know, these days anybody can take a picture with their phone. And while there is a presumption that that's probably copyrightable, yeah, there's not always a lot of creativity or originality that goes into that. I mean, the same 10 pictures could exist from the same angle of the Empire State Building. And there's not a lot of originality to that. And how copyrightable is that really, um, you know, should always be a question. But the the presumption should be that if it's not yours and you didn't create it, it is nonetheless uh, copyrightable. You know, other photographs, you know, where somebody actually designs a scene and has somebody pose in a certain way and, and really goes to great efforts to make the photo appear in a certain way in a certain light are probably entitled to a, a greater degree of copyright protection than just the standard thing that somebody shoots with their iPhone while walking down the street. If you're scanning Google images, is there a way you can tell from the from the face of a photograph if it's copyright protected or any other kind of tricks of the not, trade? No, I mean, not really. Uh, from scanning Google images, you should just assume that it is copyright protected. I mean, sometimes people will put a, a copyright symbol on their work or will have some kind of attribution uh, on the work. And, and that's a very good indication. But even without those, those aren't required for copyrightability. So you should nonetheless assume copyrightability. And and you mentioned public domain. I mean, when do you know if something's in the public domain? And, you know, it's generally best to assume that it's not unless you know otherwise. Uh, I mean, as of January 1st of this year, works that were created in 1924 prior are in the in the public domain. But that's not going to include most things you see online, most photos, most videos, most uh, sound recordings. you know, authors can gift their works to the public domain, um, you know, or they can put them on something like Creative Commons, which is a site where people can can get works for free. But you have to be careful about that because sites like that have attribution requirements where you have to, you know, attribute it to the author and, and meet certain requirements in order to obtain that kind of license. I'm curious, how do right holders sort of track a possible infringement? Um, if you're just pulling an image or, or other material, how would someone know 
potentially that that's being used? Well, so yeah, there are a variety of ways that can be done. I mean, one which is the most common is there there are a number of uh, plaintiffs' attorneys out there and, and rights holder organizations who use software to track it. Um, so they will either use web crawlers or they'll use um, reverse imaging software, such as what you would see on a uh, Google image search. And there are other programs like that where you can uh, basically scour the web for an image that is is really identical to a photograph, if that's what they're you're looking for. And there are similar types of software for, for songs. Uh, another one is if it's something that, that goes viral, which is often the case uh, when litigation arises, they'll just they'll see it. They'll see it on a media website or something like that. It'll be so popular. They'll get it through social media. So there can be you know, personal observation. Uh, software is probably the most common thing you're going to see um, you know, leading to claims these days. And then companies like Google through YouTube have uh, programs. Google has what's called Content ID that you know, automatically scans videos that are uploaded across a database of, of copyrighted content. And, you know, when it uh, detects that content, it, it will take action. It will either give the copyright owner the option to uh, let it stay up and monetize it, um, you know, or it will require it to be removed um, as a means of limiting any, any liability to, to Google and also appeasing copyright holders. Is there a set amount of damages if, if a copyright violation has been established? Does it sort of depend on the use? Well, no, I mean, there's not a set amount of damages and, and there are a couple of damage frameworks to consider. Um, so if somebody has a pre-existing registration, which means a registration that predates the first instance of, of infringement by the, the targeted party, uh, they will be entitled to both statutory damages, which can range from $750, and that's per copyrighted work, so per photo or song, um, not per use, all the way up to $150,000 if the um, infringement is willful. And that can be quite significant and intimidating. And additionally, they can also be entitled to recover their attorney's fees, which, which can also be quite intimidating, intimidating for somebody on the receiving end of a demand letter. Uh, barring that, the damages are limited to uh, the infringer's profits, which often are going to be very difficult to show. Not always. It, it really depends on the nature of the use. Um, and then uh, any damage to the copyright holder, which would usually be, you know, what could I have licensed this to you for, uh, but for your infringement, or how is the value of my work deteriorated as a result of the infringement? You mentioned a demand letter. Walk me through how that works. Um, um, if, if you're alleged to have violated someone's copyright, would you receive a demand letter in the mail? Would you get an email? I'm just curious how the process plays out. It depends, and sometimes both. I mean, there there are a number of uh, plaintiffs' attorneys who are uh, pejoratively called copyright trolls. Although I don't I don't know that that's necessarily a, a fair term, since most of what most of what they identify is, in fact. Uh, legitimate claims of infringement or cognizable claims of infringement anyway. But they, as I, as I mentioned, that will use this software or reverse imaging 
techniques to find instances of infringement of their clients' photos uh, or songs on the internet. And they'll generate a demand letter. It's usually a, a form. So if you've been, if you received a demand letter from, from one of these attorneys, it'll, it'll look the same, same as the, another one you received from the same attorney. Uh, oftentimes they'll, they'll demand some amount of money that may seem exorbitant, you know, in between five and thirty thousand uh, dollars for the infringement uh, they'll sometimes request that you notify your insurance carrier which you're you're not required to do but sometimes you will have insurance protection for the infringement uh, they'll respect request payment by a certain deadline um, you know but others will just file a lawsuit there's there's one uh, plaintiff's attorney in particular that's uh, has sued several people nationwide uh, without sending any kind of demand in advance, and that's drawn ire from from several judges and um, and whatnot. But you know, some will do that; they'll just sue you without sending a demand in the first place. So, assuming you get, and it must be pretty harrowing for people to get this kind of letter. What what would you recommend that people do uh, as as a next step if if they're faced with that? So, yeah, first you ought to see, look at it, and see what's being alleged. So. These letters will generally allege just straight up copyright infringement. You copied my work. Um, but often they will also allege what's called a DMCA claim, Digital Millennium Copyright Act claim. And this is different from uh, the DMCA of defense that I think uh, my colleague Wes Lewis addressed on a recent podcast. A DMCA claim is when somebody has omitted uh, what's known as kind of copyright management information. It's it's information on a copyrighted work, such as a copyright symbol or the name of the authors or, or even, uh, you know, kind of a, a program designed to, to lock the uh, work from being shared. If that type of information is either omitted or uh, hacked, basically, that raises an additional claim that can lead to additional statutory damages. So you need to check and see if, if it's just copyright infringement or a DMCA claim as well. Uh, you need to make note of the deadline and, and make sure that you get a response in uh, by that deadline so that a, a lawsuit doesn't get filed. Uh, certainly take it seriously. And if, if you determine that you don't have the rights to the photo, song or video, uh, I would take it down, um, you know, make sure you don't keep it up. Uh, I would also see if you do have a license. I mean, that's probably one of the first steps is because these these attorneys don't check. They don't and they'll admit it in their letters. We don't know if you have a license. If you do, please tell us right away. So you may have gotten a license from Getty Images or from from the photographer or from um you know, another source and it may be a perfectly licensed use. So you need to check and see if you have that. And if you do, you can, you can notify them and shut down the claim pretty quickly. Um, if you don't have a license, that's when I would consider engaging counsel, um, to help you and, and determine, you know, what defenses would be available. Um, you know, whether fair use or, or something like it, uh, and you also should check the to see if the the claimant has a registration for the work, because, as I mentioned, that that can really impact how strong their claim is and whether they would be entitled to statutory damages and attorney's fees were they to file suit. If they don't have the registration, you can push back a little bit more because the likelihood of suit is less. In fact, you have to have a registration certificate before you can file a federal copyright suit. So if they don't have one, they'll have to get one and they won't be entitled to those damages. 
I, I would think most people would be prone who don't have a lot of resources. If they get this kind of letter to say, um, I, I made a mistake here, take down the kind of offending content or image, um, and, and hope that would suffice. But, but that alone isn't enough. Even if you sort of mitigate the harm done and, and quickly respond, you still could be liable. Yeah, you could definitely still be liable for your past infringement. And, and look, these plaintiff's attorneys don't make money by uh, getting people to take things down. Um, they're generally going to be on contingency and they're, they're going to want their pound of flesh. So the question is always whether the claim is significant enough for them to go to the trouble of filing a lawsuit over it. If it's not, they may go away or their client may instruct them not to sue. I mean, the client makes the ultimate decision as to whether they want to sue or not, even if it's a contingency relationship. Um, but generally, these attorneys are, are looking for money um, and, and will try to pursue that if they can. Well, I'm curious, you mentioned the licenses. Uh, um, assuming you get a license, is, does that usually cover one's use in perpetuity or are licenses typically on a one-time basis? Or does there, it there are different types of licenses. It's a, a contract and it could either be limited to a term of uh, years or a very particular use in a very particular place for a very particular purpose, or it could be a uh, perpetual worldwide license with no limitations that would enable you to you know, use it forever without any restrictions. Um, so that's, that's another important thing is if you do have a license, make sure to give it a close look or have an attorney, uh, give it a close look to figure out what the actual scope of that is. Which, which leads into my next question. If people want to be proactive and, and be sure they take all the steps needed so that they don't end up in the, in a dispute or a potential dispute, what, what else would you recommend? I, I would guess one starting point would be to, to get a license in the first in, instance. Yeah. So, I mean, when it comes to folks creating websites or blogs or social media posts or even media sites, I mean, the best thing to do to avoid liability is create your own works. I mean, whether it be text or if you need a photo of something, go out and take your own photo. Now, obviously, if, if you're in, in Dallas and you need a photo of something that happened in, in Berlin, then it's not necessarily so easy. But to the extent you can, create your own works. Uh, not so easy with music. Most people aren't, aren't that musically inclined. Um, but you could also, yeah, go out and get a license. You can either go to the uh, owner of the work directly, or you could uh, go to a licensing image uh, association like Getty Images or ASCAP uh, that licenses music. Um, but music is complicated because you have to make sure you have both the performance rights, which are the rights of the person who actually performed the song, as well as uh, the sheet music rights, which are the rights to the, the underlying music itself. Um, so I would, I would definitely engage an attorney before you uh, secure license rights to make sure you get what you need. Uh, if you get a Creative Commons type, Commons type license, make sure to uh, give proper attribution because that is required. Um, so, I mean, there's a website called Creative Commons that makes a lot of uh, photographs available for free, but it specifically requires that you give the attribution and it, it lists it out. And it's usually to the author, and I think you even have to uh, reference Creative Commons in there. Uh, if you take one of their photographs, make sure to give that at attribution or your license may not may not be good. And then one thing I would recommend, particularly to my 
uh, media clients that that have a lot of content online uh, that often dates back several years is you know just as as companies set up programs to um, you know delete old data and old emails after a period of years just so you're not storing things forever and people you know often delete their uh, destroy their tax returns after after three years after the statute of limitations is is run, which is all fine as long as you're kind of doing it in the matter of due course. Uh, companies and, and websites should set up programs to remove old content. I mean, especially old news content that no longer serves you know its newsworthy purpose. Because I I see a lot of claims coming up for things that were posted, particularly photographs, you know, five, seven years ago where nobody's clicking on that anymore. It's just some bot found it or reverse image search found it. It still exists out there on the internet, but it's not doing the the website or the media company any good to still have that image up. But they're getting a letter seven years down the road threatening liability, whereas if they had deleted the thing two years after it was posted, you know, nobody would have ever ever discovered it. And that's, that's a good way to avoid liability as well. Yeah, that makes, that makes perfect sense. And I want to end by asking you about the common practice of linking to others works. If, if I'm writing a, a blog post, for example, and I admire another blogger's analysis, if I, if I just, you know, I, if I were to link to the other bloggers content and assuming, of course, I properly attribute that blogger's analysis, um, and don't claim it as my own. Does that automatically absolve me of, of liability just just by having linked linked to the work? Well, there there are two types of linking. So if if what you're doing is you're including just a pure hyperlink, you know what you see at the top of your web browser, a web address that directs users who click on it to somebody else's uh, website or blog or even social media post, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that's not copyright infringement. All you're doing is you're, you're copying the link, they click on it, and they're taken to the other site. Now, the other issue is what's called embedding or inline linking. And the background of that is comes from Google Images, uh, and there was a case in California in the Ninth Circuit called uh, Perfect Ten versus Amazon.com. And what that involved was Google image searches allow people to to search for images, and then they display thumbnails of the images. And those thumbnails are not actually copies of the images that Google is maintaining on its servers. Rather, uh, it's computer instructions that allow the website where the image is stored uh, to transmit the image to basically Google search results. So you're able to see it through the Google search result, but Google hasn't actually copied it. They're just displaying it and you click on the image and you're taken to the other website. The Ninth Circuit found that that is inline linking and that that is fine and not copyright infringement. And for years, media companies were following that ruling uh, to basically embed or inline link social media tweets and news stories and not just social media tweets, social media posts, including tweets, uh, but not just that, but also other photographs, as long as all they're doing is giving the instructions to the the web browser to display the image, but they're not actually copying it on their own servers. The image is actually still residing on the uh, copyright owner's servers. Well, uh, a judge in the Southern District of New York recently held, and several courts have followed, that while inline linking or embedding does not 
violate the copying right of copyright, it does violate the display right. Uh, and that's viewed from the perspective of the person who's viewing the website. So if to the person who's viewing the website, and you'll often see if you're reading a news article, it'll have, you know, just a copy of a tweet. Now that tweet has not actually been copied onto uh, that news article, rather, that still resides on Twitter, but it's just being displayed through inline linking. The, the court in the Southern District of New York and several others recently have held that that violates the display right and is not acceptable. And that, that flew the, the, or sent the national uh, media industry, which had been using this practice for years, into alarm as to, well, how do we, how do we display these tweets and other social media posts? And, and that remains a bit of an unanswered question. Uh, and the last point I would make on on that. So, so what I would say about that is, if you're embedding or inline linking, that's not so safe. Whereas just including a link to a website that actually takes somebody to the other website is. Uh, and the last thing, just to be mindful of, is when it comes to social media, um, sharing of social media posts and images and text within the platform is usually okay because when people post things within the platform, they're generally or almost always uh, allowing others to do it by virtue of their their agreement with the platform. You're allowing sharing within the platform. So those who share within Facebook or within Twitter are not going to get in trouble for copyright infringement, even if it's somebody else's post. But it's when you share outside of the platform. So you take a tweet or a picture from a tweet or Facebook post and put it on your own website or your own blog or take it to a different social media platform, uh, that can be copyright infringement and can get you in trouble. In some ways, it feels like a potential legal minefield. As I'm listening to you, Jason, I'm just curious whether you counsel media clients occasionally just to talk to their employees and staff on best practices just so they really understand the rules of the road. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's very important to do that and to give, you know, annual refreshers on, you know, what's changed and, and just, you know, in a sense, a reminder of this is what you can and can't do. And, you know, here are the top 10 tips you need to follow when posting content, because we're in such a fast moving media world these days where, you know, so much content is on the internet. It's so easy to, to copy and it's so easy to create. And everybody wants to be the first to, to post a report. And, you know, that type of pressure, um, can often often cause people to, um, you know, fail to dot the I's and, and cross the T's, so to speak. So it's important to have those reminders as to, to what is and is not allowable. Well, Jason, thank you very, very much. Appreciate your analysis on this important topic. Uh, before we sign off today, I'd just like to remind everyone that you can find today's podcast and our previous uh, episodes of the Media Minute and other content from our media and entertainment litigation group at hanesandboon.com. Please feel free to reach out to myself or Laura Prather, the head of the firm's media and entertainment litigation practice, if you'd like to suggest topics for us to cover in future podcasts. Thank you and take care all. 